Good morning. Before we get to uh, Pastor Julie's sermon, uh, it's my job to introduce a storyteller for the day. And I've been thinking about what to share, and uh, I want to give a little bit more context uh, before Rihanna comes up here. Uh, just uh, in 1999, uh, when I was starting my first Covenant Church, uh, High Rock Covenant Church in Boston, we sort of dove into uh, cultural exegesis. We asked the question, what is our country, our society really feeling the most uh, in terms of brokenness? And we came up with this idea of loneliness. That's what the research told us. And that insight still prevails today. We live amongst the most lonely and disconnected generation. So the pivotal word that we wanted to build our church around was the word connecting. And so the mission statement became connecting with God, connecting with God's people, and connecting with God's purposes. And those are just ways of saying the same thing that we still feel today. And so um, storytelling is really important because it allows us to connect to each other. And we weren't here last week. I don't know if you felt that. Uh, I really did. And I feel it today. I feel kind of disoriented, like the rhythm is off. And I'm, I'm seeing people and something feels off because it's because we didn't see each other last week. And uh, the men were away at the men's retreat, which, by the way, was an amazing time of connecting also. And so as part of the offering, not just to this church, but to our society and our culture, is an opportunity to connect, to be gathered together in a space and to create meaning together. And so I really hope uh, you understand the essence of what we're doing and why. And uh, it's, this is also an invitation uh, for you to participate in sharing of yourself in a connectional way through storytelling. Uh, we've been going strong now for a while, we would love to keep this going every week. We want to hear repeats and three-peats uh, of stories from you. And they don't have to be great. They just have to be stories, and they just have to be real. And so we all, on some level, live really boring, predictable lives. But when we hear from each other, there's life that happens uh, through that. Because it's not about the story. It's about the connection through the stories. And so if you haven't told a story yet, we need you to sign up. The next available opportunity is March 24th. And so we need a name for that date. Other dates are filled up. But we'd love to have the whole year planned out. Uh, and Victoria and Carrie is Victoria and Carrie. Victoria's right there, Miss Victoria. She does an amazing job. She, uh, there's a little notification on the Google spreadsheet that we use that lets me know anytime she makes a change. And I get notifications from her almost every single day. This woman is on top of it. And she's going to make sure that your story gets told in the best way possible. So please sign up to tell a story because we need you to connect to this body. And this body needs to connect to you. All right? Okay. I, I almost thought you didn't hear me. Our storyteller for the day is Rihanna, and when I think about her, just wonderful feelings I get because she has been a model in so many ways of what it means uh, to live by tracking your heart, and she has a wonderful heart that guides her and connects her to us and to God. So Rihanna, come on up and tell us your story today, and let this be inspiration for you all, slackers, who haven't told the story yet.
Good morning, church. My name is Rihanna Roche, as um, Peter just said, and I've been attending Evergreen Covenant Church for about seven years now. Now, some of you who've joined recently might think, oh, I haven't seen her before, and you are right. You might not have seen me before. The reason being is because every Sunday, I sit in that space in the back of the church, which was formerly known as the library, and I don't know if it has a name now, and I'm, this morning I'm going to tell you the story of how it comes to be that I sit in that space every week. So my story starts on March 27, 2015. That is the day my oldest son, Michael, also known as Michael, um, gave his heart to Jesus. And how that story came about is a good story for another time. Having a new desire for the things of God, he really wanted to attend church, but the thought terrified him. Michal has a real fear for crowds of people. People are unpredictable, and there is no way to know what a person is going to do or say um, and how they're going to act. Now, times that with a hundred, and it's terrifying. But I prayed and believed that the day would come when he will overcome and join me at church. So every Sunday, I will ask if this will be the Sunday that he would like to give it a try, and every Sunday he would say no. In the meantime, this was quite a few years ago, and I can't exactly remember when, but Susie Sung oversaw the children's ministry. She also started a new job as a teacher, and I know my own anxiety just increased every time I thought of how much she had on her plate at that time. Yet when Pastor Julie approached me and asked if I wanted to help in Sunday school, I didn't feel comfortable saying yes. You see, at that point in time, we only had one 10 a.m. service here at Evergreen, and every Sunday, I hoped that this will be the Sunday that Michal would be ready to join me. So I didn't want to commit, and I said no to Pastor Julie, and of course, felt very guilty about it. <laughs> Shortly after, there was an announcement made in church to explain the Sunday school teacher crisis. I knew what I needed to do. I needed to sign up to volunteer as a Sunday school teacher and trust God that he will somehow make the rest of it come together for Michal to attend church according to his timing. Although there was only one service here on Ever at Evergreen, Pastor Peter graciously allowed all the Sunday school volunteers or all the other Sunday volunteers to come to a, a, a 9 a.m. Service. It was a small service in which he would just go over his sermon so that nobody had to miss out. Now, while of all this was happening, I asked if there's a volunteer uh, job here at church for Michal. I wanted him to get a foot in the door, so to speak, um, during the week while the church building was more quiet so that he could get used to being here. Leanne, our receptionist, kindly offered him a job as a bulletin sorter. So Wednesdays, he would walk to church to volunteer, and he loved doing so. One Wednesday, he came home very excited. He had some great news to share with me. He was talking to Leanne about church and his fear of going to church, and she mentioned that there was this small service just for volunteers on, at 9 a.m., and he is welcome to try it out. He loved the idea and wanted to go that Sunday. That Sunday was also the first Sunday I would start teaching Sunday school and was planning to go to the 9 a.m. volunteer service in any case. 
The thought of having him try the smaller setup didn't even dawn on me, but of course it dawned on God who worked out the details as he always does. When the small 9 a.m. service were not available any longer, Michal felt comfortable enough to visit the big service, but not enough to sit amongst others. That is why Kathy Riper kindly puts two chairs in that library every Sunday for me and Michal. Not all churches have this kind of space available in which my son can feel safe and able to move around without being a distraction to others. I praise God for his provision and his kindness as he works all things together for our good. Michal gave me permission to tell this story this morning, and now you know why I came to sit, I come to sit in the church library every Sunday. Thank you for listening to my story. Now this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Judges. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading from verse 23 from chapter 8 and verses 1 to 6 from chapter 9 in the New Living Translation. Verse 23. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. One day, Gideon's son, Abimelech, went to Shishem to visit his uncles, his mother's brothers. He said to them and to the rest of his mother's family, ask the leading citizens of Shishem whether they want to be ruled by all 70 of Gideon's sons or by one man, and remember that I am your own flesh and blood. So Abimelech's uncles gave his message to all the citizens of Shishem on his behalf. And after listening to this proposal, the people of Shishem decided in favor of Abimelech because he was their relative. He gave, um, they gave him 70 silver coins from the temple of Balbareth, which he used to hire some reckless troublemakers who agreed to follow him. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and there on one stone, he killed all 70 of his half-brothers, the sons of Gideon. But the youngest brother, Yotham, escaped and hid. Then all the leading citizens of Shishem and Beth Milo called a meeting under the oak beside the pillar of Shishem and made Abimelech their king. The word of the Lord. Good morning, children. You are dismissed. Follow Owen on out, and he's going to lead you in a hymn sing, right? <laughs> you know what I love about Rihanna's story is she said yes before she knew how God was going to work it out. I think that's a right reminder for me and for all of us that sometimes we don't have to have everything all perfect in front of us before we respond. Well, good morning. My name's Julie Steele. I am one of the pastors here, and I get to share with you from the book of Judges today. But first, I need to make an apology. You see, two weeks ago when we were here, there was this forecast of snow, a trace to three inches was what they said. And on Sunday morning, I was talking to Kathy Riper and a few others, and I said, you know, I want to have a good snow before spring. I want to have it where nobody can go anywhere for a couple days, we're hunkered down, we can enjoy it, and then I'll be ready for spring. 
Well, I had no idea that this was what was going to happen, so I'm very sorry. However, just know who has the influence around here. And hopefully you all had a wonderful Valentine's Day, and that was on Thursday, and a lot of you know that that's one of my very favorite holidays, and I want to share with you uh, the card that I got for my husband. That's us. Can you tell? We look exactly the same. And of course, this is true. I like to be right. That is true. All right. Um, well, as we continue in the series in the book of Judges, um, we're going to be looking at what seems to be perfect or pursuing what looks perfect, but it turns out to be imperfect. Perfectly imperfect. That apple looks great, but then when we look at what it can be, it's very imperfect, isn't it? Well, as we look at the book of Judges, we see that this could be an R-rated movie. Have you noticed, if you've done any reading with this, there's violence, sex, betrayal, and blind ambition, just like today, right? We left off with Gideon's death. He was the fifth judge that God appointed. And it's important to distinguish, though, that the judges that God appointed, they were not supposed to be rulers like a king, but they were supposed to be more of a military leader who would deliver the people from their enemies in this new land. God was the only one who was supposed to rule. And Gideon, like all of us, as we heard, he was a mixed bag of faithfulness and disobedience. Judges illustrates that God acts through men and women, by definition, imperfect, because we're all imperfect. These people, they're not set up to be models. Their failures, their weaknesses, immorality, that's simply recorded. It's not glorified, condoned, or definitely not glossed over. Only their faith and courage are commended in this book. You see, God chooses to work with the most unpromising, impractical people. And that gives me a lot of comfort. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to their cry or help cry for help, even when they are being completely self-focused and selfish. He does not turn away from them. They turn from him. And I think that's an important thing to remember. God doesn't turn away from us. We're the ones that turn away from him. Well, today we're looking at Gideon's son Abimelech and how the pursuit of perfection relates to the cycle that we see in Judges and then relates to us today. So I want to start with a question. How would you answer this? How would you fill in the blank? My life would be perfect if. I think it's a great exercise for us. Now I'm going to guess that each of us is going to answer this differently. Because my idea of perfect, it's not your idea of perfect, right? I think about how we all vacation differently. My perfect vacation is going someplace warm where there's a pool and nothing planned. But your idea of a vacation might be going on a cruise with lots of activities or going on a big long hike or doing something else that's more of a physical challenge. Now, I have the perfect afternoon coming up in a few weeks. How many of you enjoy classic films? Yeah. Yes. Come on, Joseph. I'm going to win you over at some point. All right. Well, Turner Classic Movies, which is our favorite station, uh, they put on classic movies in 
theaters all over the country about eight times a year, and I get this notification. Well, on the 28th, wait for it, Gone with the Wind is going to be at the Bellevue Theater. Oh my gosh, that is the best movie ever. And it's only to be seen in a movie theater. So my girlfriend and I, we are going to go to have a nice lunch at Daniel's, go to the movie with a big box of red vines. That is going to be a perfect afternoon for me. However, most of you, like Joseph, might not agree with me on this. Well, why is that? Because we think of perfection as what we want, which is why we all have different definition of perfection. Our desires are not the same, and our idea of what is perfect is definitely not the same. It's all subjective. Now, before we dive into Abimelech, I want to take us back to verse 23 in chapter 8. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. Well, Gideon had rejected the notion of becoming a king, and he made it very clear that none of his sons were supposed to be king. But in spite of that, Abimelech saw himself as the perfect one for the job. He was kind of delusional there. You see, he thought that he knew better than God who should be leading the people, ruling the people. But see, God had not established a hereditary monarchy yet in Israel, and there were 69 other sons who would also want to be the leader. Now, a fact about Abimelech's name is one of the meanings is father is king. So perhaps Abimelech had an entitlement mentality here. He was self-promoting, and he was in it for all the wrong reasons. We don't see him pursuing God's perfect plan for himself or the people. He was the opposite of a servant leader. He was a leader who wanted to be served. So he convinces his hometown blood relatives to make them their leader. His relatives on his mother's side gave him some startup money, an old-school GoFundMe account, to establish his leadership. But he did this in a way that they never imagined. Verse 4 says that he hired worthless troublemakers who agreed to follow him. They killed all of his brothers, making certain that there would never be a challenge to his leadership, although one brother did escape. Now, when I read this account... I am really perplexed about how easily this family was convinced with his reasoning. But then I have to ask myself, how easy is it for me to be fooled by a would-be leader, whether it be political or spiritual? What's my criteria for the perfect leader? Is it charisma or education or appearance or eloquence? The prophet Samuel, after this time, was sent to God to choose a king to succeed King Saul, which was Israel's first king. He went to a man named Jesse who had seven sons there, all who appeared to be the perfect choice. But after the first one, Samuel assumed the first one was going to be the choice, the Lord said to Samuel, but the Lord said, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, after each son came in front of him, just, uh, Samuel would say, nope, that's not the one. The Lord told me he's not the one. Do you have any more sons? Well, the youngest one, David, was out in the field tending sheep, and he was brought in. He was God's choice to be Israel's next king. God's perfect choice was not the one that would be logical in human terms. So when you think of a perfect leader, what do you look for? Are you easily influenced by outward characteristics? And what about spiritual leaders? Is the perfect one the one that tells you what you want to hear or is the most entertaining? Pursuing our idea of perfection with our limited human perspective can lead us away from God, who is the only perfect one. Perfection is an illusion based on our own perception. Again, it's subjective, not objective. Relying on our own idea of what is perfect is flawed. We are imperfect, so how can we identify what is perfect? Our frame of reference is skewed as it's based on an illusion. How many times have you thought something was perfect, but like the imperfect apple, turned out to be quite different? What you saw at first glance maybe wasn't the whole picture. I'm reminded of an example from when my kids were in grade school. I'm thinking they were in second and fourth grade, something like that. And uh, they saw something that when they saw what it really was, was very different. How many of you have seen Oriental Trading catalogs? That's all these little toys and crazy things. Anyway, well, we had one of these at home, and they saw this package of swords in this catalog. And these swords looked amazing to them, and you got a bunch of them. So they wanted to buy these, and I said, okay, you need to pool your money. I'm not paying for them, and, they, you know, and then I would order them. But I warned them that these swords might not be all they appeared to be, but they were determined to get these swords. So the package came. They were really excited. They opened it up, and it turned out to be these tiny little plastic swords. They were so mad. They felt like they'd been lied to. They weren't at all what they appeared to be in the catalog. They learned a lesson that day that what you see isn't always what it really is. So Abimelech, he was made king. He ruled three years, and it turned out to be anything but a perfect reign for the people and him. But you see, they chose to ignore the wisdom of a perfect, all-knowing God, and they reaped the consequences of that. We've been talking about in the book of Judges, this cycle that is defined, what defines the book of Judges. The people are faithful and obedient. They live in a time of peace and prosperity. Then they jump to wickedness, which is sin or turning against God. And then destruction and oppression happens, and then they cry out to God and say they're sorry, and they repent. And then he sends another uh, judge, and they deliver them, and then they're back to faithfulness and obedience, and it goes all around again. Now, what astounds me in this is that it is one step between peace and prosperity to wickedness or unfaithfulness to God. 
I think about Adam and Eve. They lived in a perfect place. They lived in the Garden of Eden. There was nothing more perfect than that. And the cycle started with them. They decided to pursue what they thought was a more perfect life when they were enticed by the serpent. They believed that there was something more perfect than God, that they could be like God, and that would really be perfect. They thought that God was denying them real perfection. And the rest is history. Now, I know that this cycle is true for me. When things seem to be going along really well, I feel my need for God diminish. My focus shifts to earthly or imperfect gods, like material possessions, entertainment, or personal relationships. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. It's that the pursuit of them over the pursuit of God is what the problem is. They're all imperfect. If the Israelites had pursued God's perfect choice and remained faithful to him, they could have avoided all the destruction that they went through over and over again. Now, I want to clarify something here, that not all destruction or hardship that we face is due to sin or unfaithfulness. This cycle does not promote the health and wealth gospel, which is a false gospel. Bad things happen to good people. Your challenge may have nothing at all to do with your faithfulness to God, and I want you to hear that. What this illustrates here is a direct opposition to God's perfect plan for us. And sometimes we get exactly what we want. This cycle is specific to us seeking the perfect in the imperfect. I want to read to you a paragraph from a devotional that I've been following this year. How many of you have heard of Oswald Chambers? My utmost, whoops, my utmost for his highest. This has been a really great thing for me, and I would highly recommend it. I'm going to read one paragraph that he writes about here that talks about God's blessings and how those blessings can sometimes make us complacent and turn away. This is from January 22nd, and it's entitled, Am I Looking to God? Do we expect God to come to us with his blessings and save us? He says, look to me and be saved. The greatest difficulty spiritually is to concentrate on God, and his blessings are what make it so difficult. Troubles almost always make us look to God, but his blessings tend to divert our attention elsewhere. The basic lesson of the Sermon on the Mount is to narrow all your interests until your mind, your heart, and body are focused on Jesus Christ. Look to him. You see, whenever we look to other things that are imperfect and we take our eyes off of a perfect God, it's always going to be trouble. We see this in all of the Bible, and it's our human narrative that we live out today. So looking at this cycle here of apostasy, which again means abandonment um, from the faith, where are you? Are you in a place of faithfulness and obedience, peace and prosperity? Maybe right now you have turned from God. Maybe you're experiencing the outcome of that with destruction and oppression or unrest. Or maybe you're in a place of you're ready to cry out to God again and ask for his help 
Or maybe he's just delivered you from something. I know for me, I can go through this whole thing in one day. It's exhausting. Why can't we live in the peace and prosperity and the faithfulness and obedience place all the time? Well, if we could, we wouldn't need Jesus. Our hope breaking the cycle is in the perfect one, Jesus, who took on all our imperfections so that we could have a relationship with a perfect, holy God. He uses the imperfect things in our life, the very things that we see as obstacles to a perfect life, to make us more like him. First Peter says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So whether or not your challenge or suffering is from looking elsewhere for perfection or it's just from living in an imperfect world, we know that God is using it to perfect us. The imperfect is used for our perfection. It's how we become more like the perfect one, Jesus. God is the ultimate repurposer. Now, our church wants to be a place where people belong, become, and engage. And hopefully, if you've been here for any length of time, you've got that by now. For me, the most important part of that is the become piece. Because the church is called to make disciples, to make people who are more like Christ, who are becoming more like Christ. And the pastors are called to equip the saints for ministry. If all of us are becoming more like Christ, then the natural outcome of that is going to be engagement in ministry. God wants to see all of us imperfect people help perfect each other in this community. The early church, if you read the book of Acts, was made up of imperfect people just like us but they were pursuing a perfect God together, becoming more like him, which caused explosive growth. They were a community that was perfected with much suffering and hardship. And yet they were adding to their numbers every day. Why? Because they were perfect people leading perfect lives and everyone wanted to join in on that? On the contrary. Their lives were anything but perfect by the world's standards. What drew others to them was their radical pursuit of a perfect God. Are we that church? Can we be that church? Can we stop pursuing the imperfect, like the people in the book of Judges, to pursue the perfect one? The season of Lent is coming up. This is the time before Easter that leads up. It's, it's like Advent. It's an anticipation um, of Easter. It's a way for us to examine ourselves personally and communally as we look towards the cross, as we start with Ash Wednesday service, which is March 6th here at 7 o'clock. We begin the season together. We will have a Lenten devotional for everybody to use during the um, season as we move towards Easter with our eyes on the prize, which is the cross. And then we celebrate Easter morning after being able to examine all that Christ did for us, taking on all of our imperfection, 
so that we could be made perfect in God's sight. You'll hear more about that later, but I think, wouldn't it be amazing if all of us were on the same page, literally, in this Lenten devotional together? What might God do in this church and in our lives individually? Some amazing things. Well, here's a few applications for us. What are the imperfect gods that you are pursuing right now? In other words, what are you looking to to make your life perfect? An easier way to identify this is to come back to the first statement that we filled in here. What did you put in the blank? Maybe it was my life would be perfect if I was married or if I had another job or if I had more money or if I had more time. It could be a lot of things. For me, it ranges from my life would be perfect if I were more organized to my life would be perfect if my husband Barry and I had perfect health like we thought we would and we could do all the things that we had planned years ago at this point in our lives. That seems perfect to me. However, what I've realized is that God wants to use the very thing that I want changed to perfect me. God's idea of perfection is listed in Galatians 5. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we display those characteristics, that is perfection to God. Now, I can either become bitter about my imperfect life, or I can ask God to use it to perfect me so that I'm a vessel that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit that touches other people's lives. I know that I could be a lot more patient, and so, of course, what happens? You want patience, and God gives you something that makes you patient, but I don't want to use it. I just want to have it, right? Or I need more self-control or gentleness or faithfulness. I need to be perfected in all of these areas. Could it be that what you think would make your life perfect is exactly what God's trying to use to perfect you? Instead of asking God to change your imperfect circumstances, ask God to use them to perfect you so that you can display the fruits of the Spirit to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are imperfect people. And we pursue our own ideas of perfection, which are not perfect at all. We pray that today we would recognize our own subtle or overt apostasy or turning away from you and turn back to you. May each of us allow you to use the imperfect circumstances in our lives to make us more like Christ. In your son's name we pray. Amen.